All right, so uh, without wasting too much time, good afternoon everybody and welcome. Uh, again, this is our second uh, meeting of the seminar this year. I will say just a, a few words about the context of the seminar and then I will introduce our speaker and then I will shut up. Uh, so during this academic year, the Israel Studies Seminar will explore what it means to widen the horizons of conventional discourse about Israel by focusing on various perspectives of Israel. The seminar's objective is to situate Israel within broader contexts, including uh, thematic, theoretical, methodological, epistemological, and geostrategical. Our speakers this year are invited to offer views of Israel from the sociopolitical or historical vantage points of various traditions, groups, cultures, and states, or from varying epistemological perspectives. We hope that by doing so, we will be able to illuminate topics that may be otherwise neglected in the field of Israel studies, but are nevertheless crucial for understanding Israel, uh, Israeli and Middle Eastern politics at large. Our speaker today, Dr. Moshe Behar of Manchester University, um, among the many fields he has already published and uh, dealt with in his research, I may know just uh, the following. Uh, he's dealt with the Arab-Israeli conflict, with matters of Israeli society, politics, and culture, with Middle Eastern uh, Jews before the 1950s, and with Mizrahim in Israel post-1950s, with nationalism at large, and uh, with the mutual consolidation of Zionist and Arab nationalisms within a comparative frame, uh, f framework. I'm sorry. He has recently edited and published with uh, Tzvi Bendor Benayit, a truly groundbreaking volume on Mizrahi and modern Middle Eastern Jewish thought, and he also edited a special issue of the Journal of Modern Jewish Studies dealing with uh, the fusing of Arab Nahda, Europe, uh, European Haskalah, and Euro-Zionism, Eastern Jewish thought in late Ottoman and post-Ottoman Palestine. The title of his talk today is Birth of the Ashkenazi-Mizrahi Controversy, on the Arab question, 1910 to 1912. Dr. Behar, thank you for coming. All right, should I close it or no? No, keep it. Uh, for those who speak Arabic, I mean, I'm the Bawab also, and the lecturer. Bawab is the guy that takes care of the door, uh, the buildings in Cairo. So that's what I also feel. Uh, okay, thank you for having me. Uh, it's not the first time I come to visit, but uh, it's nice to return. Also some friends, uh, Professor uh, Glenda that helped me so much with the recent uh, article, my uh, former PhD student who is now in Cambridge, so I don't know what you're doing here right now. <laughs> uh, and some guests from Manchester that I haven't seen for some time, so it's really lovely. So thank you for me, I feel a little bit at home. Uh, it can be good and bad, but... Yeah. So, uh, birth of the Ashkenazi Mizrahi controversy on the Arab question. Um, some of the... What is, uh, I'm going to present was already published because when I was approached, the, there were two options in terms of my current research. One was to speak about the debate between Marxists after the 1967 war, which would be very contentious, it's people who self-defined themselves as Marxists and debated what was going on after 1967. I'm not going to discuss it today. And the other option was to go back to the Ottoman period to try and see the beginning of what later would be called the Arab question. Okay? So that's what I'm going to do today. Um, right. Let me go straight into the issue. I'm trying to understand a controversy that emerged during these years, 1909, 1912, or even 1913. Uh, and the main question that was debated by the participants was simple. Should the Hebraist Zionist movement in the 20th century in Ottoman Palestine, should it invest funds to publish a newspaper in Arabic? That's the question. So you have the, the Jewish national movement, and you know that the, the reinvention of modern Hebrew is a very important component in the national formation of Zionism. Uh, developing the language is very important. If you compare, for example, uh, 
Zionism to, let's say, the Basque country or Catalonia or, or the Copts in Egypt, all of these many national groups are attempting to reinvent and form a unified national he, uh, uh, language, which is very important for the possibility of national consolidation. And this is the time when this is taking place, especially before 1914, very strong emphasis on the development of Hebrew. And here come people saying, no, we need to publish a newspaper in Arabic, or not? Should we invest money in this question? So my, what I suggest to you is that what started in 1909 is just one another obscure intra-Zionist debate, which were, there were many, but what started, it's like the butterfly in China that produces a storm in New York. I mean, that's the metaphor. So what started initially as just a debate between <coughs> some people who self-defined themselves as Zionists, although they are very heterogeneous, right, matured or developed into what I term the first Mizrahi Ashkenazi controversy. Okay? Um, this is what I propose here, and I think that this is why this moment is so important to understand what came next. And I want to clarify a little bit my terminology here. So the first thing is that this is a work that follows this book. Everything that I discussed here is not included in this book. This book was published in 2013, I think, right? But it does fall within, still within the field because we believe, me, it's myself and Svi, my colleague from NYU, we do believe that by coining this, that when we publish this collection of primary sources, we do believe, although of course, uh, I don't know how you translate it to uh, English. I mean, I'm testifying on my own work, which is not a good thing to do, but we do believe that we started to, in a way, chart a domain of scholarship that did not in, uh, exist in this way. People did not think of modern Middle Eastern Jewish thought, modern Middle Eastern Jewish thought. If I go out there to the street, uh, whatever the street is, and I just grab an, anti, an undergraduate student, hold him in the middle of the street and say, and I'm saying the word Jewish intellectual, right, or Jewish intellectual history, Chances are that he or she, the undergraduate student, will know something about it. Because people have connotation that links Judaism and intellectual activity. Because of all kinds of reasons, being a minority group, I'm not getting into it. So they will be able to say Einstein, Freud. They will be able to link intellectual activity and Jews. Okay, never mind why sociologically. But Nobody will be able to mention one modern Jewish intellectual who is not European. You will be able to say, to mention names of Jews that were intellectuals, but in the Middle Ages or before. Uh, I mean, the Rambam wrote his books in Arabic, so he was not exactly a European. Eh? But if you go to the modern period, there's a disconnect. And that's what we were trying to do, that there is such thing that is called modern Middle Eastern Jewish thought. And what I propose today is what I'm going to present now is part of this thing, although I ran into these sources after this book was published. Um, what typifies modern Middle Eastern Jewish thought? Because this is the womb within which my talk today develops. Okay, so I'm just going saying it very simply. The organizing principles are these. First, what is helpful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah, the rest is the explanation. This is a very famous uh, uh, sentence uh, from the Babylonian Talmud. I believe that this is a feature of modern Middle Eastern Jewish thought. B, geography, very important element in the thought. Jews are Semites, okay? Any Jewish renewal, including Zionist renewal, must link itself to the East. If European Zionists want to 
go back to their ancient homeland, Eastern European Jews, they need to be Semites there, not to be Europeans there, as many of them were during the first 14 years and also later of the 20th century. Um, Jews are Easterners, and as such, they should contribute to the renewal of the Arab world too. So they can contribute to the renewal of Jews in Ottoman Palestine. At the same time, they're supposed to also contribute to the renewal of the Arab world within which Palestine exists. Okay? Bilingualism. No problem. Modern Jewish intellectuals in Ottoman Palestine said we have no problem with the project, the Zionist project of renewing the Hebrew language. No problem at all. We like it. But we are not going to desert Arabic. So the uh, modern Jewish intellectuals in the Middle East usually said if you move into Ottoman Palestine, it is fine if you are going to reinvent modern Hebrew, but you also need to study Arabic. And these are very clear sources that mention it time and again the need for Jews to, uh, to uh, um, be bilingual, not only speak Hebrew. Okay? Ottomanization. The modern Jewish intellectuals, including the ones that I'm going to discuss today, strongly believe that everybody that moves into Ottoman Palestine should become an Ottoman subject. Uh, I'm not getting into the system of capitulation that existed in the late Ottoman Palestine whereby individuals could move into the Ottoman Palestine but still maintain a link to their uh, uh, countries of origin without taking legally Ottoman papers. So I'm not discussing it too much. Modern medicine Jewish thought usually said that it is better for Americans and Brits and English and Russians that move to Ottoman Palestine that they will become Ottoman subjects. Very important. So Ottomanization is yes, is, is a plus. Um, and that's just the context. Remember the chat that the controversy that we are discussing today takes place when the Ottoman Empire is still there. Palestine is part of the Ottoman Empire for over four centuries. And everything that happened later, like for example the Balfour Declaration, we have the I mean nobody knows what's coming up. Huh? This is very important to not to view what I discussed today in teleological terms. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember that the people that we are going to discuss today, they have no idea about the upcoming war, although they understand that our tensions uh, already at this time in other places of the empire. So that's the context. Uh, now, very, very important point that again relates to terminology. Am I permitted Moshe Bar permitted to use the word Mizrahi when discussing the pre-1914 period. That's a big issue. Um, uh, Mizrahi ordinarily denotes the formation of a sociological collectivity that came into existence inside the state of Israel especially after the 1950s when Jews from nine different Middle Eastern states moved into what used to be mandatory Palestine and became the state of Israel. This happened after 1949-1950, so after 1948. Because of economic, cultural, demographic and other processes, a new collectivity emerged that we call Mizrahi Jews, Mizrahim Eastern Jews. Um, so here what I say is this it is true that sociologically speaking if you use the vocabulary of sociologists it is true that a sociological collectivity emerged in Israel after the 1950s but what I propose to you is that Mizrahi or Eastern political thought an orientation 
and disposition and reasoning, I mean, did exist in mandatory and also Ottoman Palestine even before Jews moved into the territory from nine Arab states. So um, that's why I do believe that it is permissible to use the word Bizrahi when I discuss the chapter of history that I'm discussing today. And more than that, I'm a bit bolder and said, this is the moment when the phrase or the label or the signifier Mizrahi Jews makes sense for the first time in history. That's the, in a way, some a bit bold proposition that I'm trying to defend here today. Uh, and now let's go back and see, people did use the word Mizrahi Jews before 1948. This is a source that now was published by the Journal of um, Modern Jewish Studies, and this is the first time that uh, this source is translated to English. It didn't exist before. So let's take uh, words by Esther Moyal. Um, and this, this was published in Hebrew, and that's what she writes. Last night, I was fortunate to witness for the first time the clash between the views of Sephardim, mm -hmm. whose perspectives and opinions are fully Mizrahi, that's the word she uses, Mizrahi in Hebrew, right? And the opinions of their brother, the Ashkenazim, saturated with European way of thinking. Two cultural powers dominate the earth, according to Esther Moyal. The ancient Mizrahi, Mizrahi global, eastern uh, Mizrahi forest, and the European. She says in 1909, the latter triumphed, the Europe triumphed over the former and will soon wash it away completely. She can see the, the clash between these two powers. But she uses the word Mizrahi. At the beginning of the gathering, she describes a gathering of people like here in a room in Jaffa in 1909. She says, at the beginning of the gathering, I felt the anxiety one experiences when clouds are filled with electric currents before storms erupt. This is a Mizrahi Ashkenazi tension there. Ethnic Jews that come from different places. Uh, she says, agony was visible on everyone's face. Everything is written in Hebrew, yeah? While both groups spoke in Hebrew, mutual understanding was minimal. Not everything the Europeans said was understood by the Eastern, while the European did not always comprehend the thoughts of the Eastern. You can see already Mizrahi, non-Mizrahi dynamics that we know exist. Of course, in 1959 and the Black Panther, but we can see already there elements that are very similar, that, uh, that resemble very much what we know for the post-1948 period. Let's see what else she writes. She says, the nature of the Mizrahi, and that's the word she uses in Hebrew, Mizrahi, yeah, is to adhere to paths agreed in advance. He or she, but it's he in the text, desires to proceed very slowly in Palestine, while rushing tends to trigger his disengagement. The Mizrahi is moderate, very moderate, and it is possible that this alleged shortcoming is actually superior to careless hastiness. This all relates to the acts of the Zionists in Palestine, what exactly to do. And the European become excited more easily. It's kind of funny, it's almost, she's almost an occidentalist, uh, Esther Moyal. She describes the Europeans in a way in a, such a generalized term, but that's why it is interesting. The European becomes excited more easily. She has in mind the Zionists in Ottoman Palestine. He wishes to move forward in huge steps, notwithstanding Palestine's local obstacles, of which he is not yet aware. Okay? Uh, the European likes to opine, even if views have already been articulated before him. Albay in a different style. So you can see already she points out to the different style of reasoning between the two ethnic groups of Jews. Whereas he, the European, chases life, grants principles, think of Zionism, huh? it is more pertinent to discuss tangible issues. Uh, I hope that readers will not be quick to judge my words unfavorably without taking into account that I write in Arabic, right? Uh, uh, 
I write in Arabic, and the person assembling them in Hebrew is not fluent in it. And the person that translated these words from Hebrew to uh, from Arabic to Hebrew is her husband, Dr. Shimon Moyal, which we are going to discuss quite a lot now. My aim, Esther Moyal tells us, in 1909, is not to judge the battles between our parties, but to record the impressions that that a Jewish gathering in the land of Israel made on me, and then that's how she self-defines herself, a Hebrew-Arab woman. That's how she defines herself in 1909. In Jaffa. Okay? So, let me just uh, recapitulate what, uh, what I'm going to say. You can see here that it is not that I, Moshe Bahar is imposing here vocabulary that developed after 1948 and throws it on, on, into uh, uh, Ottoman Palestine. I truly believe that actors in the time themselves were articulating Mizrahi thought. Okay? Right. Now, the last thing I want to say is what does it mean Ashkenazi Mizrahi controversy? Because that's the part of the title that I'm using here. So when I say controversy, uh, it's a debate about social, political, cultural, economic, or artistic topics that is comprised of this. And this is the elements that need to exist in order for us to describe a controversy with the words Mizrahi Ashkenazi. Not to use lightly, okay? So what does it mean? A, the controversy must be public. So if I, you, we sit on lunch in, in St. Anne and debate issues, that's not a controversy, okay? Because nobody knows about it. Uh, it must involve at least two individuals on each side, so to speak, but usually more. In the controversy I'm going to discuss, I'm discussing today, about 24 people were part of it, uh, and it was public. It must involve at least one party self-defining as Eastern Mizrahi, <coughs> and that's the case here. Uh, it must last days, even weeks, and most crucially, when one says a Mizrahi Ashkenazi controversy, right? by definition this means that he needs to address some element of the post-1882 uh, Palestine-Israel question and or its associated intra-Jewish relationships. It is about the question of Palestine slash Israel. Uh, now, make no mistake, Sephardi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews had disagreements about all kinds of issues. Even uh, Theodor Herzl in 1896, 1897, during the first uh, um, the first uh, Zionist Congress, there was a debate between him and Avshalom, Shalom Yehuda, I forgot, uh, yeah, it's an Iraqi Jew from Palestine, uh, Shalom Yehuda, a very famous professor, that we know that they had a bit of a clash about these issues, but that's not a controversy because nobody knew it. Uh, it was not public, so it doesn't count in a way, although it was related. Um, so, uh, what I suggest to you that according to the definition I provided, the first Ashkenazi Mizrahi controversy took place only in 1909, in the way I defined it. And more than that, it was in October 1911 that it truly assumed the title Ashkenazi Mizrahi controversy or even clash. Why? Because of the writing and the activities of two individuals, Dr. Shimon Morial, who happened to be uh, the husband of Esther Moyal, a Jew from Jaffa and uh, also a, a medical doctor, and a very important Ashkenazi intellectual uh, uh, and activist, Dr. Avram Luvipol, who has a PhD from the Sorbonne, and also there's a street in Tel Aviv uh, named after him, a very nice street to live in, by the way, uh, uh, very expensive real estate. Uh, right. So now I'm just going to simply read together with you sources from the period itself because I think that the sources speak for themselves better than I do. Everything that is uh, here was translated from Hebrew, okay? So for example, one participant uh, writes, the first bomb, uh, when he says the first bombs, he means the first Palestinian Zionist clash 
that was violent and threatening. That's what he has in mind. He writes, Maman, representing one side of the controversy, the one that self-defines itself as Mizrahi. Okay? While we, local Jews in Palestine, predicted the first bomb before its actual appearance, we failed to anticipate how soon it would explode. Now it has, he says. And then he communicates with Ashkenazi Zionists in Ottoman Palestine. He asks, did you hear it sound, my dozing Ashkenazi brothers? Were your nerves shaken following its explosion? Or is it that you now confirm what I've long suspected, namely that your very senses have been utterly destroyed already for such a long time? He refers to the miserable, in a way, the terrible history of Jews in Eastern Europe in relation to anti-Semites. Of course, that, uh, that oppressed them so much. He says, um, uh, Is it possible that you have heard nothing of recent news from Haifa regarding attacks on local Jews? So, this is a situation where in 1910, Palestinians attack local Jews due to the conflict that is emerging relatively early. Uh, perhaps, uh, that he says, Listen, this is again a perspective of a Mizrahi or Sephardic Jews in Ottoman Palestine. That's what he says. Perhaps for you, brothers that come from Eastern Europe, right, such news means little because you've been long accustomed to physical persecution, praot in Hebrew, uh, and witnessed in your bodiless heads, open stomaching, dismembered bodies. Of course, it means pogroms, right, in Eastern Europe. Yet, do you have any idea how much these developments affect the lens local Jews? They depress them not only because they, Sephardic Jews or Mizrahi Jews, are quite naturally extremely worried about Palestine's situation. Peace and tranquility have thus far dominated their lives in Ottoman Palestine, as they are centuries distant from such inhumane behavior. Uh, clashes between Jews and non-Jews that deteriorate to to, to pogroms and murders, right? Local Jews, Sephardi Jews, he means, also worried because they are significantly more familiar with the land's hard and dangerous conditions. If, heaven forbid, it would also experience the pattern of pogroms suffered by past Jewish generation. Local Jews are also familiar with the spirit of the Arab people among whom they lived safely until now. Those brothers pay attention to our situation, learn thoroughly from this incident in Haifa, and open your eyes. That's what he's trying to say to the members of the Zionist movement in Ottoman Palestine. You, who by moving to this peaceful land from Eastern Europe, right, a peaceful, tranquil land, escaped persecution, where, where exactly will you run next if the situation deteriorates in Palestine, he said. You, who are to be blamed for your boycott of Palestinian laborers and goods, because there was a bit of a boycott that was going on uh, back then in relation to non-Hebrew labor. Um, so he says, you who uh, are to be blamed for your boycott, loud cacophony, a lot of big words, wild imagination and false heroism, very strong words, where are you now? You, who as a consequence of your impulsiveness placed more obstacles than bridges on our holy movement, he means Zionism, because he is a Zionist, and our last hopes, until when will you hide from sight, he says. You brothers are furthest from being in touch with the lands, Ottoman or Arab masters, while at the same time removed from the poisonous Arab writing, of which we are occasionally able to translate only fragments to you into Hebrew. He means translating uh, writings in Arabic in late Ottoman Palestine in relation to the Zionist movement that are very hostile to everything that is going on. So uh, to conclude this source, right, you can see here two camps in a way. Both self-define themselves as Zionists. One is arguing that the mainstream Zionist movement in 1910-1911 is developing in a way that is very antagonistic to the Palestinian national movement or the Palestinian that live in Ottoman Palestine. 
Now, this all relates to the question of whether the Zionist movement should publish a newspaper in Arabic to try and engage with Arabic-speaking individuals and with the Arabs in Palestine in order to form some common ground to debate, discuss, and discuss the issues. Um, so I can tell you right now that back then, the opposition to the Zionist movement investing in a newspaper in Arabic was quite great. And the person that, in a way, exemplified this opposition best was Dr. Ludwig Pohl. I mean, he was quite... Uh, and that's what he writes. I mean, that's what he says. I mean, he writes seven different articles about the issue. And what I suggest is the principal contention for him is this. If the newspaper is a Hebrew newspaper in terms of content, if it discusses issues that relate to Jews in Ottoman Palestine, then it will not be an Arab newspaper. And if it is Arab newspaper, it is not going to be a Hebrew newspaper. What I suggest to you here that you can see here a trend of thought among intellectuals, very important intellectuals, including people like Brenner and others, that in the period of before 1914, right, simply view Hebrew and Arabic, Zionism and Palestinians, uh, uh, they view it in, in, in a very dichotomous way, that the two cannot meet, that there's no way to bridge between the uh, two communities and even their languages. Uh, and then this is what Ludwig Pohl writes. Okay, again, this is written in Hebrew. He says about, in relation to those who are interested in publishing a Hebrew newspaper in Arabic. That's the way it is defined. He says, and here come our own Arab Jews. Now, a European Zionist refers to local Jews. He says Arab Jews. It's not, uh, I don't know, all kinds of radical Arab Jews, Yehuda uh, Shenav and Ena Shochav that say Arab Jews. He says Arab Jews, okay? Uh, 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 and uh, he employs the signifier the, uh, disparagingly. He says it in the, with, the, I mean, yeah, not in a, a positive way. And here comes our own Arab Jews trying to do what we did in Europe. Publish, trying to publish newspapers in the local languages of the communities within which we live. Like, for example, British Jews trying to publish in English and make their case in English. That's what he said. He said, but it is one of two options, my friend Sephardic Jews. If you wish to create a Hebrew newspaper in Arabic of the first European type I have mentioned, in a second I'll explain what it means. Um, come along and we Europeans uh, will furnish you with knowledge, education, and wisdom on how useless this exercise is bound to be. As was the case in Europe, such an initiative is still born by definition. If you're to have in mind a newspaper in Arabic for intra-Jewish purposes, right, then permit me to laugh outright, he says. For whom do you intend to create a newspaper in Arabic? Thank God we have not sunk to such a level where we need to speak in Arabic in the land of Israel to the people of Israel. I can understand if those two or three importunate brainless assimilationists, those that are uh, 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 supporting the idea that Jews will speak Arabic in Palestine, viewed as assimilationists, among Sephardic Jews who preach for a merger with Arabs and acceptance of their language at the expense of Hebrew language and literature, speak to us about creating a newspaper in Arabic. So I understand that there are few exceptional individuals among Sephardic Jews that think about these issues, right? Um, um, uh, from one twisted-minded individual, he meant Dr. Moyal, I heard that it isn't worth selling one Zionist settlement to finance an Arabic newspaper. These are some kind of uh, ideas that uh, were around in order to find the resources needed to publish newspaper in Arabic. But we should not argue with such people that think that it is worth symbolically to sell one Zionist settlement in order to publish the newspaper in Arabic. Uh, my words, 
writes Ludwig Pohl, I directed to all those young Sephardim, describing the sentence nationalist, Zionist Sephardim, and presenting themselves to us as products of the new national revival, national Zionist revival. To them, we say, he says we, and we says we means mainly European Zionists in Ottoman Palestine. On Gentiles, namely Palestinians, your newspaper, we have zero, zero, zero effect. For Jews, we have no need for a Hebrew newspaper in Arabic at all. Okay? So, now, just read now the response by the other side of the controversy, the Mizrahi side, and this is time uh, uh, Shimon Moyal. Uh, okay? So this is now from 1911, uh, in Hebrew, right? Ludwig would think of me as his opponent because I did not follow his word with Amen, he said. And because I, the Sephardi Mizrahi, this is the words that Shimon Moyal uses, not me. Sephardi eh? Mizrahi there demonstrated that his European opinions and his experiences are insufficient for the proper assessment of Eastern affairs. The contempt reflected in Ludwig's eyes is visible. He unleashed his tongue against me and all enlightened Sephardim, whom he derides with insults, mocking, ridicule, laughter, and yawning. Uh, in doing so, Louisville brings in man Goliath, I mean, I hope, uh, Goliath's behavior towards red-headed youngster David. He cites the behavior, uh, behavior of Goliath vis-a-vis -vis David in the uh, Bible. And now he says, and this is again his words, it's a primary source that I read here, it's not us. That I, it's not in position from, uh, from the post-1948 period into the Ottoman period. It, uh, he says, Shimon Moyal, tell us our guest, Mr. Ludwig Pool, have you ever had the opportunity of embarking on a long journey to find yourself suddenly caught in a heavy rain and then invited by a gypsy to be a guest in his tent? The gypsies now are Sephardic Jews. Okay? That's the metaphor. On your departure, did your education and manners guide you to condemn the tenth owner for his poverty, wildness, and parochialism, or instead take your leave of him with gratitude and praise? Even if you primarily view us as Mizrahim, as Easterners, that's what Moyal says to Ludwig Pohl, right? Even if you view us as Mizrahim, you ought to remember that you are our guest, and that local Jews and our ancestors, right? suffered many years to maintain their national identity, he says, right, amidst the many national groups that generation after generation ruled the land of Israel or the land of Palestine. These are the lands of Israel's local Jews, whom you value as of zero worth, but who are nonetheless the primary foundation for the Israelite national revival. That's what he says to Ludwig Pohl. If those are the people who you deem assimilationist, local Jews, huh? whose young you describe as brainless and powerless while doubting their national Zionist commitment when compared to your own new nationalism, right? then please tell us who are the nationalists according to your lucid European opinions. Because, I mean, let's stop for a second and see what happens here. He is, con he is protesting the fact that an East European Jew with a PhD from the Sorbonne moves to Ottoman Palestine and claims vis-a-vis -vis Arabic speaking Jews that they are assimilationists. And to be perfectly honest, there is some merit in this argument because it's a little bit odd if I, with my you know, very bad English, would come to a Jewish or non-Jewish British Jew and say, you are assimilating. <laughs> I mean, in, uh, it, 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 it just everything from the perspective of Mizrahi Jews in Ottoman Palestine is odd. We are assimilationists. We who maintain a collectivity, Jewish collectivity, here for so many centuries. How can you say that we are assimilationists because we are Jews, as far as we know? I mean, uh, yes, Arabic-speaking Jews, but we are Jews. We didn't become anything else. That's the insult that he is experiencing back then. So he says, now, uh, 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 the third line here, from here, he says vis-a-vis -vis Ludwig Paul, you are unreasonably 
martial evidence from European Jewish newspapers, right, written in the language of people whose chief national belief rests on melting everyone into the general society, while considering that, that applicable to an Ottoman society whose chief national idea is that each tribe and race should remain within its own type, customs, and languages, provided that this is, idea is joined by the love of the Ottoman nation and knowledge of other groups' languages. By the way, this is, you don't understand how important this green sentence is. Because the, the, Moyal, Dr. Moyal right now describes two competing models of nationalism. He says that nationalism in Europe, including France and this country, is a nationalism that aims to melt everyone and to turn, for example, Jews into good French or good English people. He said, what he says vis-a-vis Ludwig, you need to understand, that's not nationalism in Ottoman Palestine. In Ottoman Palestine, a national revival does not require one to lose their own parochial, so to speak, identity. On the contrary, he points out to the fact that under the Ottoman Empire, you can be a nationalist, but you can still maintain your distinctive identity. There's no need to assimilate or to become like everybody else. That's why this is very important. So what are the conditions? The conditions are these. You can be national in Ottoman Palestine, provided that you support and respect the empire, which is multinational, right? A, and B, provided that you you know the culture and the language of other groups around. If you do that, you can be nationalist. It's not a problem. That's the view that... uh, the Mizrahi side of the controversy presents in pre-1914 Palestine. In his narrow outlook about the condition of life, Mr. Luvipul reminds me of that little fish swimming to the edge of its lake and concluding that that is also the world's end since life outside the lake is impossible. Now, the lake, he means Europe here, of course. He says, I mean, what happens to you, not only you, Luvipul, but the European Zionists in Ottoman Palestine is that they think that the European lake is applicable everywhere. And if Jews fail to uh, uh, advocate for the Jewish cause in Eastern Europe, for example, in Russian or in English, they think that it is not possible to advocate for the Jewish cause in Arabic in Ottoman Palestine. Because that's their conclusion. That's beyond their lake. It's very hard to comprehend that one can be a native speaker of Arabic without assimilation. And uh, this is the argument in general. Ludwig also reminded Moyal of that ignorant Egyptian peasant who was asked why he doesn't plant lava beans, which is full, the national Egyptian food, on his land, and answered that it is because when such seeds were planted in Russia, they failed to grow. Again, you see the analogy. He says, yes, if you take seeds of fool and plant them in the ground in Russia, they're not going to grow. But if you do it in Palestine or, or in Egypt, you are going to have fool. It's not the same. He's trying to point out to the difference between Ottoman Palestine and Eastern and also probably Western Europe. That's the argument here. Um, there is a Ludipol response to Moyal, and that's, uh, uh, that came, uh, was published in October uh, uh, of 1911. Two weeks later, uh, he, he writes, a certain man, he doesn't even mention his, uh, Dr. Moyal's name, a certain man among our Sephardi brothers found himself insulted by my words. His response did not and cannot teach me anything. He presents nothing I don't already know. The brilliant idea of selling one Jewish settlement to whom, to non-Jews, to finance an Arabic newspaper has not yet been endorsed by our Sephardic brothers who have not yet sunk to such low level, uh, love level of, for the country. So uh, um, Ludwig interprets the symbolic suggestions of Moyal to sell a Jewish settlement in order to find money to publish 
a newspaper in Arabic, he sees it as a betrayal or, 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 or as an expression of insufficient love for the land. That's basically uh, the, the argument. Um, and also there is a bit of an attempt here, I mean, I think that there's also a little bit of an attempt here in a way to divide and rule, because what he's trying to do here is to try to now split Sephardic Ottoman Jewish intellectuals and say some are assimilationists and bad, are not proper Zionists, whereas the others don't buy into these ideas, but follow our leadership and our ideas about exclusive uh, renewal of Hebrew alone, without dealing with Arabic. Um, right. Uh, I, I don't know how, how much time do I have. All right. So it's not a lot. I mean, but I do want to read one more source against a primary source, because I think they speak better for me f than us in relation to the Mizrahi Ashkenazi tension and controversy. So a guy, his name is Aham Basrawi, uh, 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 signs Sefaradita Ho, that's how he signs his writings, but he, he's not, uh, uh, I mean, he also signs his own name, so it's not that he only presents himself in a pseudonym. I mean, he also signs under his own name. Self-defense of Sephardita Ho, which is a pure Sephardi in Ottoman Palestine. Again, because that's the Sudanese Iraqi, anyway. Yeah, well, originally, but uh, there are many Iraqis that moved into Ottoman Palestine in the early 19th century. For example, the Shalom family. I mean, uh, so I mean, the guy can be Iraqi originally, but can also be in a family that lives in Ottoman Palestine a hundred or even more years. So, okay, Basrawi. Anyway, um, so now again, he writes and responds to Ludwig Paul, to the same individual. He says, you, Ludwig Paul, cannot understand the substance of and the necessity for the newspaper which we, native Jews born in this land, propose, the Arabic newspaper. Since arriving from the diaspora, he says to all the European Zionists at the time, uh, you remain distant from us, okay? You need to join our circles, right? nor become involved in our lives which you deem strange. Mm -hmm. Now this is, he speaks about Sephardi life in Ottoman Palestine. Your observation of us remains diasporic in nature. He said you bring the diaspora into Palestine. Your persistent Francophone vantage point, because again, it's a PhD from the Sorbonne, yeah? mm -hmm. your persistent Francophone vantage point leads you to imagine the lands Arabs in European terms. You interpret local newspapers as if they were European, but you are wrong. One, European newspapers in Europe, of course, are published by different political parties to specific audiences who learn from them all they need. But in the land of Israel, in Palestine, newspapers are general in nature, their number is limited, and they have few subscribers. Even in the big and trade center, Beirut, capital of greater Syria, this is 1911, yeah? There are no more than five or six newspapers. You are wrong to argue that local Jews wish to replicate European activities, and as a European, you are far from understanding us. The newspaper we envision is not the one you describe. It aims is to be a general newspaper, not a Jewish newspaper, uh, a general newspaper. Uh, whose editors and writers will be committed to the truth, professional journalism, he mean? Such a newspaper does not yet exist here. Since the 1908 uh, uh, constitutional revolution in, in Istanbul, uh, in Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, the government has begun to consider seriously what newspapers print. There was a big opening in the Ottoman Empire after the 1908 revolution. Today's journalism is the means and power between people and government. You need a newspaper, in Hebrew newspaper, in Arabic, to make your case. That's what he said. I judge and challenge your libel against Hebrew Arabic writers and young Sephardim whom you label assimilationists. Of course, they were very, very insulted to be called assimilationists. I mean, uh, the way is of life in which we were raised and the lens of Israel's pure climate did not evoke the assimilation controversy 
that has dominated some of our European brothers, because assimilation is a big issue in Europe, of course. Our descendants settled in the land hundreds of years ago, living Jewish lives. We have remained faithful to Judaism, and other nationalities living with us, Palestinians too, have likewise remained faithful to their ways and religions. Okay? Um, I repeat, our diasporic brothers, I mean Ashkenazi Zionists in Ottoman Palestine, on settling in this land, refrain from viewing us paternalistically, looking down on us and alienating us. We have had enough of the many errors your predecessors committed as a consequence of their unfamiliarity with the land's life and nature. Remember the context. I mean, it is the context whereby the beginning of the Zionist-Palestinian clash emerges and it's the first moments where it begins to assume a violent form. It didn't, uh, uh, was not uh, yet violent that much. I conclude here. Alhamdulillah, as they say. So the newspaper was published. Not a lot, but this is in 1914. Voice of Ottomania, the Southern Ottomania, which is, of course, the voice of the Ottomans. So you can see also that the, the title of the newspaper relates. It's a general newspaper. It's not a Jewish newspaper, but a Jewish, a Hebrew newspaper in Arabic. And in this specific page, we don't have a lot of uh, surviving copies of this. Uh, I think that's the only, uh, only page that remains. Uh, so it so happens that it, it, back then it was four pages, the newspaper. It was just, uh, and uh, this first uh, page uh, doesn't say anything about Jews, Palestine. It discusses issues that relates to the Ottoman Empire in general. Uh, but then, of course, the war broke and buried not only the, this newspaper, but many other people too. And the last thing I want to say is that I want to visually try to convey again and conclude what is it that these Sephardic Jews or modern Jewish intellectuals in Ottoman Palestine thought during that time? What was it? That, what, what did they see? Right? And what I, I believe is that this can capture this, this thing. It, 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 it is a vision that combines everything but does not negate parochial identities. So you can see, for example, this kind of a flag, right? It's a flag that brings everybody together under a single flag, but without one needs to, for example, uh, convert to Christianity or, or Islam. That's the, the issue. I mean, so just, I mean, it's, it's like a vision, a vision of, 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 of fusion. You know, this is something that is very, very different than the way that, and by the way, these are Zionists. That's the, also very important to bear in mind. These are not people that are, don't self-define themselves as, as Zionists. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the um, the uh, uh, visualization in a way of the intellectual ideas of this group of intellectuals during the late Ottoman Empire. I think that's the the way that they should be understood. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ooh.